Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 16, The Miseducation of Quoth Arladin's Son, where we will be looking at chapter 36 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of gatekeeping. For those that don't know yet, each week on this podcast, we examine a section of The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figure out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian Phronemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact and wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though we're always open. Second of all, our discussions are naturally going to assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you're a weirdo who doesn't mind being spoiled. Either way, beyond this point, here be spoilers. And a final word, just remember, let's be kind to one another. As per usual, we are going to be starting with a 45-second recap of the books. Now, if you've missed a few episodes, Will has chosen to go back to 45 seconds because he doesn't really want to eat that many more cherries. You're just trying to get in my head. One of these days, I'm going to make you eat some raspberries. Delicious, fresh raspberries. And I'll eat the rest. Yuck. All right. Got a timer ready? Your time starts in three Two, one, and go. Quoth goes to the library where Willem is at work. Will says, on the contrary, you're being a jerk. Admissions ends today, so you'd better hurry. So Quoth scampers away to assuage his worry. The masters give him a quiz over facts great and small, but Quoth proves he's a whiz because he's heard it all. After dickering over price, they grant him a scholarship, but Quoth's blind to their nice until Lauren points out their dollar slip. 22 seconds. Not bad. No more cherries. Oh, thank God. Okay, so let's get into the story. I'm so, so glad that we're kind of out of that just misery hole. Though, I have to say there are a couple of sections of both this chapter and one that's coming up where I just, I can't listen to it or read it. I've actually been reading it this time around, but I've listened to the books a bunch of times. And even the very, very first time that I listened to it, I can remember exactly how I felt when Kvothe is just such a freaking idiot and I could see what was happening. And it's not this instance, it's not the instance where he just gets all pissy because he thinks that he was assigned a tuition that was too big for him to pay. It's the one where, again, spoilers, seriously, if by now you haven't realized... Spoilers, 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 spoilers. But it's it's when Quoth is stupid enough to take an open flame into the archives. I cringed through that whole thing, and I have never listened to it again, and I will have to read it because, meh, but I got the same exact feeling when he got so indignantly pissed off 
that his payment, his tuition, after all of his cheating through his college admissions, got him a tuition that was less three talents. So negative three talents. Got a scholarship, dude. You got what you wanted. <laughs> and after he was like, I am the smartest man in the world and I'm 15. He did it again. He did the smartest kid in the room thing again. He just never learns. He doesn't know when to shut up. That is very true. And I think part of this is he's essentially the homeschooled kid. Yeah. He's never actually had to understand how academic institutions work just by virtue of their scale. And I'm not sure how many academic institutions exist in this world. We don't know if there's other universities, if there's other schools of magic, if there's other schools where you can just learn how to do math. One of the things we do learn, though, is that because of the expenditure involved in maintaining these sorts of institutions, they're really only available for people with money. And that brings us to our topic, our lens. Now, Quoth doesn't really come from money, especially at this point. He's got almost nothing to his name, and he's never had any real experience with formal education. All he's got is this idealized version of the university in his head. He doesn't know what it's really like. He's not talked to anyone other than Abanthi who has gone to the university. And I'm sure that he has heard rumor or heard something before Abanthi showed up. But there's not really a whole lot of time during his period in Tarbian that he could really learn anything about the university? I mean, he's never even had to sit in a formal lecture. He's never had to deal with registration. He's never had to deal with any of the things that go with even just a basic primary or secondary education. Those are experiences that we oftentimes, I think, take for granted, but he's never had to take a class that he already knows everything for. He's never had to listen to a lecture that isn't tailor-made just for him. He's never had to even just take a class that he's bad at. Right, because when you have one-on-one -on -one instruction, the person instructing you can spend as much time as they want or as much time as you need getting the lesson through your head. Like when he was with Abanthi, Abanthi wasn't sitting there giving him a grade for everything. He was saying, okay, You've learned what you've learned, now it's time to move on to the next lesson. Whereas in a larger class, the instructor doesn't have that luxury. They can only go as fast as their slowest average student. It's here that we get introduced to all nine of the masters at the school. It makes me wonder, are they the only people teaching or are there students or other arcanists that teach kind of like student teachers or adjunct professors? We never hear anything about them. In addition, there's only a handful of teachers that Quoth ever takes classes from. And adult Quoth is the one that's relaying this story. And he is very much not a fan of him. He's got a view of him that is certainly less flattering. As we'll see in later chapters, 
I don't know how much we can trust Quoth's version of Ham. I think we can trust that there was antipathy between the two of them, though as to its source, who knows. But I think that Ham is in many ways the archetype of the teacher that loves to play gotcha with their students, that loves to knock their students down a peg when they've gotten too arrogant. We'd never see him in a positive light. And I wonder if there are people in the university that actually do appreciate his style of teaching. The only student we ever see who seems to have anything resembling a positive relationship with him is Ambrose, who is also painted as a jackash. Precisely. I remember when I was in college, we had a professor who was oftentimes referred to jokingly as Dr. Death because he was famous for not being the most charitable when people made mistakes in his class. That's a very nice way to put it. Correct. And I also remember that that view of him was actually not very accurate. He was actually a much more complex person in real life beyond what his reputation would have you believe. He really did care a lot about his students. He just didn't want them thinking that they could just spout off whatever they wanted, and especially in the English department where it could sometimes get into sort of an anything-goes scenario. He didn't want them thinking that they could get away with saying whatever they wanted unchallenged. And so he challenged them, and oftentimes harshly. At the same time, he really did care for them as people. He just was also a naturally sarcastic person. And I remember my sister actually became friends with him and got to know him and discovered that, yeah, underneath all of that biting sarcasm, there was someone who was genuinely warm and caring, even if people just didn't understand it. He was just someone who didn't suffer fools gladly. And so if you were used to everyone being super nurturing and welcoming all the time, he could be a cup of cold water. I kind of get the impression that maybe Hem is like that. And with Quoth, who's essentially expecting everyone to immediately recognize his genius, someone who doesn't instantly acquiesce to that, is someone that he takes a front to. So I have my own experiences. I think... It is important to remember that your teachers are complex human beings and they are not monolithic teacher and that they are people just like we are people, which is why when I was in college, I made friends and am still friends with a lot of my very dear professors. I could always tell that the professors at DigiPen took a genuine interest you know, it's hard to take a genuine interest in all 50 students or more in your classroom. But for those of us who made the effort to get to know our professors, we've made really lasting bonds with them. That being said, when I was a teenager, and I think I was in 11th grade, I really loved math. I loved geometry. I enjoyed and understood everything that I'd gone through math-wise and also science-wise. I had a teacher for a math class that genuinely made me dislike her enough that I decided not to take the highest level of math that was offered at my school the next year because she was the only one teaching pre-calculus. 
When I was a kid, I had, well, I still have glasses, but my glasses prescription wasn't kept up to date very well. And it hurt my eyes to sit close to the whiteboard and have to read off of it. So I would sit in the back of the class and I would work on my homework for the next day while the teacher was explaining the homework from the previous day. I usually didn't need to go over it again, or at least I thought I didn't, because for the most part, I got nearly everything correct and it wasn't a terrible challenge. She didn't seem to like that. This is my interpretation as an adult looking back, but at the time I also thought that she really didn't like me. She thought I was distracted. She thought I wasn't paying attention. Anyone that knows me now understands that if I am not looking at a thing, I'm still listening and I am still able to understand. And I'm genuinely going to understand it better if I have something else occupying that part of my mind that wants to just go. She also didn't seem to care when I told her that I was getting headaches from having to stare at the board. So she sat me in the front row so that she could keep her eye on me and made me put my next night's homework away while we were doing the recap of the previous night's homework. And I hated it. I was so angry with her. I was so angry with her that I jeopardized my own education, because that's the smart thing to do, by refusing to be in the class that she was teaching that I would have wanted to take the next year, by refusing to be in pre-cal. And instead, I took a math class that would help one of my other friends get into college. I think that for certain students, having a teacher that challenges them in a way that isn't, let's see what you can do, but is more like, let's see if you can follow the rules, can kill their curiosity. And here we actually see an interesting contrast between Master Hem and Master Kilvin. Kilvin is one of my favorite characters. He challenges Quoth. Absolutely. But he does so in a way that says, I'm challenging you because I have a question I'm generally interested in and I want to see what you tell me. Maybe I'll figure something out from what you say. He's asking an honest question as opposed to sort of a trick question. How do you make an ever-burning lamp? Right, and he's not asking because he wants to trick Quoth up. He's asking because he genuinely wants to know the answer. Right, because he's looking for an actual solution to this problem. Whereas Hem is sitting there going, I am smarter than you, and you could not possibly understand any of this because you're just a dumb kid. Or at least that's what we're getting from adult Quoth, who is being heavily influenced by child Quoth. And I'm sure, looking at it as an adult, I'm sure that my math teacher did not intend to make me hate math. And I don't hate math, but I don't think she intended to make me choose not to take her class. Kilvin's question strikes me almost like one of those whiteboard questions that you might get at a job interview, where he's asking the question not because he wants to know the specific answer, but he wants to get a sense for, how do you think? What sort of problem-solving style are you going to employ? And he gets a little bit of that from Quoth, where Quoth actually starts engaging Hem's questioning is meant to weed out people who just haven't been paying attention. Or haven't actually gotten an education that would set them on the right starting line. And to be fair, Quoth has also been able to get past most of Hem's questioning by virtue of cheating. 
and watching other people fail. And Kvothe is proud of this. Kvothe prizes his own cleverness. Well above others. And it is said that a smart person learns from their own mistakes. A wise person learns from other people's mistakes. I have to say, though, part of the reason why I can look at this situation and go smack my head again and go, oh my god, that's the wrong lesson, is because it reminds me of me, (laughs) in a lot of ways, find a different solution and possibly take advantage of others in a not very malevolent way, but like, one of the things I keep bringing up, I used to play a lot of World of Warcraft, and every year at the winter holiday, I don't remember what it is anymore, there's a recipe that you get or some quest that you get that requires you to make, I think, cookies or something. It's milk and cookies, isn't it? It might just be milk and cookies. I am a cheeky person that goes and buys milk from the vendor right next to the auction house for like 10 silver and then goes and sells it on the auction house for like 10 gold because people are dumb and will buy it from the auction house before they will even look at the vendor. I made so much gold in that game from doing that every year because it seemed like people didn't learn. Was I taking advantage of a system? Yes, absolutely. Did it really hurt anyone? No, not at all. Can I gloat now? Obviously. (laughs) And that's not what I mean to do here, but that is kind of what I see when Kvothe goes into, oh yeah, of course I just snuck my way in, and of course I listened, but I had a good reason. I needed to do it. I needed to cheat. Understand, I did the bad thing for a very good reason. I needed it. It's a very selfish motivation. Absolutely. And then he has the gall to then complain. But they never asked other people these questions. Yeah, because they didn't start off on that starting line. They moved the goalposts. Because Kvothe moved the goalposts. Yeah, he obviously demonstrated that he was answering their standard questions. So they wanted to see how far they could go. And the fact is that when you have someone who is so obviously getting everything, who seems to know everything, it almost makes you wonder, why are you going to school? And the chancellor actually asked him. Why do you want to go here? I think we need to rewind just a little bit because we've gotten into the meat of the chapter without the introduction. And I think that the introduction is important. But we have him waking up late, kind of like that scene from Mulan. Mulan wakes up and is being fed her porridge and then all of a sudden realizes that she has to be at basic training in like two seconds flat. So it's kind of reminiscent of that. Both wakes up in a bed of heather, travels to Emre, and then he sees the archives, this building that he has been drooling over. He sees it in the flesh or stone. Or both. Ew. Anyway, he sees it in real life. And in something that sounds like an editor made Patrick Rothfuss do it, we are hit over the head with the analogy of the archives look like a graystone. A.K.A. a waystone. Hey, that's the name of the pod. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He makes that analogy in short order within a couple paragraphs of one another. Twice. And then he says it again once he actually enters the archives. He says it was just graystone. And I'm like, okay, we got it. 
<laughs> and we also get his first interaction with Willem, another one of my favorite characters. He and I have similar names. That has nothing to do with it. <laughs> I promise. And Kvothe is met with a little bit of gatekeeping here. The archives aren't for just anyone. This isn't a public library. This is an academic library, which means it's for students and faculty only. And Kvothe is neither of these at this point. There's a sentence that was said about how he had butterflies in his stomach. He says that his stomach was dancing with butterflies. Butterflies, which always trigger thoughts of the Cathay. And what happened when he was told, no, you cannot just enter the archive. It's just for students. The butterflies died. It's because possibilities suddenly were slammed closed. Suddenly all those might-haves just ceased to be. Then Will gives him actually some pretty decent advice. He doesn't seem to really be judging him. So Will just says in this sort of value-neutral sense, admissions wraps up today. They usually stop early. It's the last day. Better go. And then you can come in after you've been admitted. Or once your name is in the book. I liked that it wasn't just a doors shut, you're never getting in. It's, hey, here's what you need to do so that you can come in. And then, from what we can tell, he takes two hours to cheat, to slip in the back door of the hall where the admissions are being held, and possibly arranges so that he's the last student that they see. But it's not really listed. The actual, hey, I'm here to take a test, hey, I'm here to be admitted, doesn't really get across, which I think is fine. I think that narrative shortcuts are fine. It might just get a little too tedious in a book that is 722 pages long. But you got to figure that this whole process for the masters is tedious and time consuming. And while a lot of it has to do with verifying that your students should continue, the new students, I wonder if they're worse. I wonder if the people seeking admissions for their first term are just insufferable. I'd be willing to bet so. My sister worked in college admissions for a long time, and there's sort of this trope in liberal arts where you will oftentimes see the college will put out a statement saying that they're looking for whole people who are complex individuals and they want personality. And then you have a group of kids who are generally from very well-to-do families who prize academic achievement above all else, and admission to a good school is one of the barometers of success for them, and they all end up doing the same sorts of things to prove that they are complex, unique individuals. So they're all doing the same sorts of community service projects. They're all doing the same sorts of extracurriculars. They're all saying that I'm a unique individual who wants to be a whole person but they all want to be a whole person in exactly the same way. Or they've all been told that this is how you become a whole unique person. Having graded a specific set of essays for one of my absolutely beloved teachers, because we were a game design school, the idea behind our essays for one of our first game design classes was to take existing games and to modify them, make them either better or more interesting or something. It doesn't even have to be better. Modify it 
and experiment and see what happens and write about it. So grading 80 of these papers, you see the same modifications over and over again. And full disclosure, I saw some modifications that were the things that I had done in my own paper. It is novel the first three times. It's interesting to see where people differ. But the 15th time you see someone say, draw two cards instead of one card. Uh, it still doesn't make sorry good. <laughs> As someone who remembers exactly what my modification to sorry was. Yeah, and had to play it. Over and over again. Ugh. <laughs> You're right, it's easy to start seeing all of these things blur together. And in a society like Quoth's, like the Society of the Commonwealth in the Four Corners, which is very much a stratified society, which isn't actually all that different from our own, really, if we're being brutally honest. The luxury of a formal education is reserved only for the very wealthy, and those sorts oftentimes begin to think that they're entitled to their success. And Quoth calls it out right at the beginning, you have to be either rich or smart, the less you have of one, the more you have to have of the other. But this isn't a meritocracy by any stretch. Also, smart is incredibly subjective. Yeah. Kvothe has an eidetic memory. He also is a bit of an autodidact. He's rare in terms of that sort of thing. If he's telling the truth. Even still, he required a certain set of circumstances to find himself in the position to be able to even take advantage of that. Consider, if Quoth, with all the abilities that he's listed as having, never happened to run into Abanthi, if Quoth didn't happen to have Abanthi's book that he could use to help him get into the university, Quoth never would have ended up there at all. If any of Trappist's other kids had Quoth's abilities, but didn't happen to have rhetoric and logic as a way to pawn off, to build the wealth, just to be able to look presentable, hire transport, get some kind of food and lodging to hold them over, they never would have been able to make it in. And that, I think, is something that we've got to look at in our own society. If you don't have money and you don't have a way to get money, and I mean a lot of money, at least in the United States, even a two-year degree can be cost-prohibitively expensive. And now, for a lot of students to pay for a higher education that has always been the promise of success and money coming in, you have to mortgage your future to pay for your present. Most people trying to earn a four-year degree do seek student loans. Quite a lot of my tuition at DigiPen was paid for by grants and scholarships, and I was very fortunate for that. I'm still paying a ridiculously high amount every month, like a quarter of our rent every month, to the U.S. government to pay back the loans that they gave me. And I graduated five years ago. For students that have no credit, for students that have no family to rely on. The tuition costs of a good school, one that will get you recognized, 
a school that will be respected enough or accredited or what have you so that you will be taken seriously at the jobs that will pay you a decent living wage. It's almost impossible. And then add on top of it, not having presentable clothing in this instance. If any of the other street kids from Tarbian showed up at the university in what three days ago Quoth was wearing, if Quoth had showed up that way. I'm sure that there are smart, smart children People that, if given a chance, would have had the ability to be both, but circumstance has kept them from being able to get past those gates. The meritocracy lie that you oftentimes hear is a way that a lot of people allow themselves to feel like they deserve their success compared to other people who are not as, quote, successful as they are. But it also keeps the people who are not, quote, successful or, quote, deserving, from feeling like they can reach above their station. Exactly. This is one of the more harmful aspects of our society. It keeps the stratification stagnant. Thank you for enjoying our adventures in Marxism. (laughs) Now let's talk about the means of production in the Four Corners. (laughs) I mean, again, with the gatekeeping aspect, you are sure that you are here for the right reason You know that this isn't to begin your education, but to continue it. Don't you think that somebody outside in the admissions department, whatever passes for an admissions department, wouldn't they have also been a little bit of a gatekeeper trying to prevent both from wasting the master's time? And that also hits at something there. The ability to have education is something that I think a lot of people in middle-class America take for granted, where... Public schooling is the law of the land, it's to be expected, but for many people who have less money, they don't have a choice to go to school. To go to college. I'm actually talking about pre-college. So for instance, if you have people in a lower income, specifically if you don't have a home, how do you register for public school? If you have kids living on the street, they don't have a school that they can go to. And we see that in Tarbian. None of Trappist's kids had a school that they could go to. And it makes me wonder if there are formal, actual schools for the kids that are born to parents that can afford to just live in a house. The idea that you're there to continue education presumes that you had the means to have any kind of education prior to being there. Again, even in our contemporary society, that is far from a given especially when you look at schools in the inner cities are oftentimes so underfunded and they can't afford to pay teachers to actually take care of the kids, many kids end up dropping out and falling through the cracks. It takes someone with a very, very large heart to choose to be a teacher in a school that is that difficult to teach in with that little amount of funding. Forget being able to pay your teachers a living wage, much less the wage they deserve, but when the funds aren't there to give those schools equipment and books. Just basic supplies even sometimes. And you know how often teachers in our society have to pay with their own money for school supplies for their students. At least in our country. And these are just basic things like pencils, paper, notebooks. Construction paper. Glue sticks. 
we're not even talking about computers or tablets or anything like that just the things that students need to be able to learn and grow and create these are very real problems and the difference between a poorly funded school and a well-funded school is oftentimes the difference in the average wealth of the people in the area. It also perpetuates itself because underfunded schools, by their nature, have a harder time with having their kids reach a higher level, reach that level of higher education, to be able to qualify to go to these public universities, to go to these private universities, to go to, God forbid, even to think about an Ivy League education. And even if they do, they're automatically assumed to be a scholarship kid, which there should not be any, any stigma against people who get a scholarship to help them go past where they were, past where anyone thinks they could go. And for every kid who comes up on scholarship, who's worked their tails off, you've got a bunch of people who got in, mostly because of who their parents were. Anyway, let's get back to uh, Kvothe's story. So we're going back to Kvothe's admissions. By their very nature, college admissions are an exercise in gatekeeping. Not everyone who applies for a college will get into that college. Now, part of that is because the college itself doesn't have the physical room to allow everyone in. So there has to be some element of choosing who you want to have in your school. This is an interesting way to do it. It reminds me a lot of panel interviews that you see for a lot of tech companies, and they're nerve-wracking. And Kvothe relates this story as though he wasn't nervous. I look at it as Kvothe is someone who has been trained as a performer. And performers, though they may not seem nervous once the performance starts happening, they're nervous. A lot of them, yeah. It's not unusual to be nervous and there's no shame in being nervous. There is one thing, though, that he does a lot. And I think it actually betrays his nervousness. He snaps when he's irritated, when he gets poked with something he either knows very well or with something he doesn't know, and he hates not knowing something. He said something bitingly before he managed to get his tongue under control again. And the mental image that I have is both fighting with a ginormous tongue. <laughs> and so let's actually talk about some of the masters that we meet here because I think they're interesting figures. We've already talked a bit about him and Kilvin. Let's talk about Lauren. Lauren, who is as impassive as a stone and works in the archives. Please continue to hit us over the head with the analogy. Master Lauren is interesting because, well, he's not malevolent. He bears no malice towards Kvothe at all. He also is firmly in the I'm going to judge you based on what I can see. I'm not going to give you benefit of the doubt unduly, but I'm also not going to set out to screw you over. He's what you would describe as probably lawful neutral. And he seems to indicate a past association with Arladen, Kvothe's father, which we never really get to come back to. I want to know so much more about Lauren. I have my own theories about Lauren. 
Are you going to put those in the Backcountry Patreon podcast? I think so. He's clearly got some knowledge that he's playing close to the vest here. I mean, he's privy to knowledge that seemed to be unavailable to the others, and he seems to travel more than the others as well. I do appreciate that the archivist doesn't just stay stagnant, that he wants to learn more. He's a collector of knowledge, and he's also someone who seems to actually get out into the world to gather it. Let's also talk a little bit about Arwill, who is the physiker. Quoth has a fairly positive interaction with him. Arwill will also wind up being a person that challenges Quoth in that kindly manner that is like, I know you're doing things, you know that you ought not to, but I like you, kid. We consider Arwill's choice of profession and specialty, which is all about how the human body works and how we can use that knowledge to help people and heal people. I think part of it may be that he recognizes some of the pain that Quoth has been through and maybe thinks this is a way to help with that, to heal that. Arwill's pretty cool. Arwill also lets Quoth deal with the consequences of his actions as kind of its own punishment. He knows that Quoth is smart enough to recognize where he's messed up. He doesn't need to add an artificial punishment on there, but he's there to maybe help make sure that Quoth learns his lesson from the first time so he doesn't make the same mistake twice. Now let's talk a little bit about Master Brander, who is basically just a math teacher. Kind of boring. <laughs> I mean, later on it seems like he and him make a bit of a pact. Well, math and logic, they're pretty close together. Right. But I mean, Quoth paints it as a pact against him. Oh, of course. Quoth thinks everything's about him. <laughs> I don't read too much into that. And we don't get much more than that about him. Quoth seems to go out of his way to avoid taking math classes, which I can respect. We've also got Master Mandrag, and I like the answer to what are the three most important rules of the chemist. Label clearly, measure twice, eat elsewhere. <laughs> I loved chemistry as a teenager. I loved the classes that I got to go to where I got to mix random shirt together. I really liked the classes that I had to take things apart, take chemicals apart, and try to figure out what they were. And I liked chemical equations, and I liked learning about all of these things to do with the natural world. And I love this advice. It kind of reminds me of a Walter White theme. You can take this to the bank. We know that somewhere Master Mandrake is working with one of his former students as a meth kingpin. <laughs> Elksodal is another one that we haven't dug too far into. I like him. I do too. I'm always tickled by how he's described as being like the evil grand vizier in every melodrama, but he's actually a really nice guy. <laughs> he asks a question that has an answer that is about the moon. And there are two instances that I picked out that are about the moon in this particular chapter. It would be easier for me to get a piece of the moon in reference to both getting more money. And in this case, Elksadal asks questions about the synodic period of the moon. I always picture Elksadal as sort of like he has the appearance 
of Jafar from Disney's Aladdin. Yes. <laughs> but then, like, the voice of Gandalf. Okay. <laughs> like, that's just kind of how I picture it. <laughs> the voice and manner of Dumbledore. That's a better one. <laughs> like... Wizened old wizard rather than being evil old wizard. And then we come to Elodin, who is, of all of these guys, kind of the wild card. I get the impression that he doesn't speak very often. But everyone seems to listen when he does, whether it makes sense or not. They listen, I think, though, out of a sense of respect for the institution rather than necessarily a respect for him. Some of them. Him... Apparently, again, according to Quoth, doesn't have much respect for Elodin as a person. And I can understand that there's some animosity back, you know, lighting Master Hem's robes on fire and trying to destroy all of his possessions in his room might be your first clue. Obviously, when things go to casual arson, it's not a good relationship. <laughs> But Elodin is also the first that asks a question that isn't directly academic in nature. He asks, what are seven words to make a woman fall in love with you? When you look at Quoth, who is so starved for love, that's something that's probably going to stick with him. It also hints to Elodin's nature of being a little bit fey around the edges. And Patrick Rothfuss has intimated in various convention talks that in fact, Elodin is of fae descent, at least partially. Take that as you will. Much like Foth, Patrick Rothfuss isn't always the most reliable of narrators. I think until you see it on the page, it's not really real. I like the description of how Elodin's voice held a certain resonance. And how when he spoke, everyone at the desk stirred slightly and then grew still as though it were leaves being touched by the wind. And that image is going to be constant throughout this series. When we think about the courtyard of the winds, is it? The courtyard that's in the middle of Mainz? Yeah, that one. Where people use the leaves to try and see the wind and see the path that they take. It's a very evocative image where they put wishes on pieces of paper and send them into this little whirlwind. It's a beautiful image. It's also where we meet Ari. It's somewhere that Kvothe plays music. Everything around it has a little bit of mysticism. Even as the rest of the school treats magic as an almost industrial practice, it's the one place where it feels wild and in touch with the natural world. And then we come to Herma, who is both the Chancellor and the Master Linguist. And Linguist and Namer seems like two sides of the same coin. One seems to be more on the scientific side, the other is a little bit more mystical. And Herma's questions are much like Elodin's in that they are not directly academic. They aren't something that speaks to just your ability to recite facts. He's asking a question of Kvoth, what do you want out of this school? Why are you here? And this is a question that there's not a right answer to. This isn't something that you can just recite from memory. He's asking Kvoth to know himself. 
to understand himself. And it's interesting to me that Kvothe specifically avoids saying some of his true motivations because he's self-censoring. For once. But at the same time, he is more interested in how he appears than what his actual truth is. And given his background and some of the traumas he's endured, I can understand why. I can't fault him on that. But this is one of those opportunities where even if he doesn't speak those truths out loud, he can maybe come to understand them a little better because I don't think he himself strictly understands everything about himself. I like his answer that he says out loud. I don't know, sir. I guess I'll just have to learn that too. And that speaks to one of the things that you can do in college, which is kind of experiment. Kvothe is very young. He's only 15 years old, and at 15, you're still trying to figure out who you are. You're trying on different identities. You're learning about different aspects of yourself. I don't think I know anyone who at 15 knew who they were. And I look at my friends from when I was that age and compare where they are now, radically different. They might have known who they were at 15, but they didn't know where they would be at 20. They didn't know where they'd be at 30. Or 40. There's a lot of growth and experimentation that happens between those ages. I mean, I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. Me either. And I think knowing that your being is in flux and in a state of growth at that age is important. And acknowledging that you're never really done being a given person. You're never going to be a completed, finished whole. You're always going to be a work in progress. You mean that college admissions don't make you into that whole person? Nope. Never have, never will. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, you're going to keep growing. And hopefully, you're looking for places that are going to help you grow into the kind of person you want to be. I want to always be the person that wants to learn. And that should stay with you after you graduate. Whether you go into academia or out into the workforce, the ability to learn and the desire to learn are going to be the things that help you keep growing. And I think it's important to remember that most people are not the same as they were 10 years ago. That's the same for 20-year-olds. That is the same for 30-year-olds. It's important to acknowledge that we can look at a situation, make a decision, and then days, months, years later, learn that we were wrong, own up to that we were wrong, and apply new knowledge to the situation should it come up again. I think we've both had to do that in our relationship. I know that I've grown since we started going out. I've seen you grow as well. I've seen it in action. I love that we've grown together. Me too. I love the people we've grown into. I'm looking forward to seeing where we continue to grow together. Me too. We need to just address the small little elephant in the end of the chapter. Both being a complete and utter dumbass again. <laughs> yeah, he isn't really listening, and he isn't really reading what the outcome of his performance is. And then when Lauren approaches him to 
start offering him information about his father. Seems really fascinating. It does. Quoth stops Lauren from continuing down a line of questions and talk that the audience is probably just like, right. Especially us as rereaders, instead of listening to the words as they are said or questioning the outcome that he thinks has happened, he thinks that he is given a tuition of three talents and he's actually been given a tuition of negative three talents, less three talents. He jumps to a conclusion. He gets mad and indignant. And I have a hard time reading this because this kid that legitimately should be very, very smart does something embarrassingly stupid. And it just, I hate that. But then he gets angry at Lauren, who's got to be like, I thought you were smart, kid, for all your learning and all of your smarts. You are stupid in very interesting ways. I think it's because he doesn't listen. I think that he doesn't listen, but I also think that he's very young and hasn't been confronted by every situation or every type of person. And to be fair to Kvoth, the masters don't exactly give him his answer in a straightforward fashion. They also don't take what he said and reiterate it back the way that he said it so that they have communication that is like input-output. So I can see where a little bit of the confusion is, but rather than ask, he assumes and he makes a huge ash out of himself. Yep, they gave him exactly what he asked for and then he got angry. (laughs) How are you going to win with someone like that? I think that that interaction probably told Lauren everything he ever needed to know about Kvothe. And it tells us, the audience, a lot about him too. To be fair also to Kvothe, because I don't want to just treat him like he's an idiot always. He's hanging his entire future, or what he thinks is his entire future, because we tend to get very myopic about very specific things. And in this case, Kvothe would have probably succeeded at something, and two months later might have been able to come back with money. But he's seeing the situation as, this is my one and only shot at this. And my whole future is going to crumble if I don't get what I asked for or demanded. And when he realizes that, oh my god, I was a total moron, he just sits down and weeps. And the audience is like, but, but talk to Lauren. He was telling you some interesting things. Could you get out of your own head? I think it would have been good for him to talk to Master Lauren, who seems to have this knowledge of his father, this prior acquaintance. And it might have been good for Quoth to maybe have some of that understanding of who his father was, a greater understanding than maybe what he was able to get as a child. Right, because who at 12 years old knows their parent as a complex human being? I don't know who my dad was before I was born, but... I've talked with grandparents and aunts and uncles and, you know, people who had a chance to know him. And yeah, it's always been very illuminating to understand this other side of my parent that isn't just dad. And that would have been maybe something that would be very beneficial for Kvothe. The one thing that I 
consistently wish would happen in the books every time I reread it. Just like talk to the professors, ask questions, be intellectually curious, get to know them as a person, and they might have more information for you. Lauren, ahem, Lauren. Also, respect office hours. That's what they're there for. I'm sure all of my professors that listen to this podcast are going, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Even though I kind of didn't because I just had conversations with them. But, I mean, it's not the same. <laughs> and now I think we can actually move on to our Fernemos. It is your turn, Phoenix. Who do you got? I have chosen Master Lauren. And the reason I've chosen Master Lauren is he's got this kind of quiet wisdom. He doesn't jump to conclusions. He doesn't assume things. And so far, he's been very willing to give both the benefit of the doubt throughout this whole interaction, which is probably the one saving grace that Foth actually has. He is the antithesis to Foth's impulsivity and brashness. Instead of following along with Master Hem, who immediately assumes that Kvothe is a liar. He's not wrong. Accurate. But instead of just assuming that Kvothe is lying about the book that Abanthi gave him. How's that? That's fair. He asks Kvothe where the book was pawned. He offers to go get it. He seems to want to give Kvothe an opportunity. He doesn't show his emotions on his face. Although I would say that him blinking when Kvothe mentioned Ilion was the greatest man ever to live was probably a sign of some sort that Kvothe maybe got to him a little. Now there's a lot of speculation that Master Lauren has something to do with the Amir, And... I'm inclined to agree with that. Later on, when Kvothe goes looking for more information about the Amir and about the Chandrian within Master Lauren's domain, which is the archives, Lauren is very aware of everything going on within his precious stacks and tomes. And instead of purposefully trying to embarrass Kvothe, he takes him aside and quietly explains, hey, maybe this isn't the best course of action. I like that he also very quietly takes Kvothe aside after the whole interaction, the whole West talents, and wants to know more about him. I kind of figure that there's a possibility that Master Lauren may have met Kvothe when he was a lot younger, like a baby. That maybe he knew Kvothe's parents. Especially, there's a very high chance that he knew Lorien. Because if Lorien was from a noble house, the upper crust of society tends to be very small. And when you have a small group, everyone knows everyone, or at least they know someone who knows someone. This is kind of the same thing within the game industry, in the United States at least. Because I have connections in the game industry, I also have connections that are connected to other people within the game industry. My seconds on LinkedIn are just, yeah, a lot of people. 
And then my thirds are probably everyone else in the game industry. That being said, I also have a lot of connections to people who are connected to Patrick Rothfuss. Because of my experience at DigiPen, I've met James Ernest, and James Ernest made the game Tack with Patrick Rothfuss. There's an interesting little, very small group of people connected to a small group of people. And I think that that's probably true within the Four Corners as well, and that the upper crust knows other people within the upper crust. One thing that I took about Master Lauren is he is neither reflexively skeptical, as in what you're saying is obviously a lie, but he's also not reflexively credulous either. He doesn't just immediately believe Quoth. No. Because that would be insane. He says, well, it could be true, it could be false, there's an easy way to find out. Let's find out. He doesn't actually make a decision one way or the other until he's got actual evidence, which is actual skepticism as opposed to sort of the popular skepticism that you might see on the internet. Or out of Master Ham. Well, and Master Ham has sort of the internet skeptic style that says anything someone says is probably false. Lauren, though, is a classical skeptic simply saying, we don't know yet until we test it. It is neither true nor false. We're not going to treat it either way until we can verify. Schrodinger's book. Kind of, yeah. Anywho, now that I have given you my phronemos of the week, it is your turn to give me your interesting fact. Today's interesting fact is the reverse headstock rock. As some of you may know, I enjoy playing the guitar. I make no claims of being good at it. I just enjoy doing it. And as you also may know, if you followed me on Instagram, I play a guitar with a reverse headstock. I think it looks cool. Now, oftentimes people think that this is something that has an effect on the sound, but it actually isn't. This myth, though, has a very interesting root in Jimi Hendrix. If you're not familiar, Jimi Hendrix is one of the greatest guitarists of all time, and he is famous for playing a Fender Stratocaster. And this is the same sort of guitar that was also played by Eric Clapton and David Gilmour, Stevie Ray Vaughan, a bunch of other players. And Hendrix was unique in that he was left-handed, but during this time, left-handed instruments were not readily available. So being an enterprising guy, he just flipped his upside down, restrung it, and then went to town. And as a result, it had that unique upside-down look on the headstock. And his sound sounded like nobody else. Now, many of the uninitiated thought that it was because of the way the headstock was oriented, because it was upside-down from what everyone was used to. But in actuality, that's not it at all. It had nothing to do with string tension, because the string tension is handled by the nut of the guitar's neck, and that doesn't change whether it's left-handed or right-handed, upside-down or right-side-up. That stuff's the same. And for those who don't know, the nut is at the top of the neck and it separates the fretboard from the headstock. Yep, it also holds the strings in tension. So a good nut is the difference between your guitar going out of tune and holding its tune no matter what you do. But what changed the sound is the way the pickups on a Stratocaster work in particular. A Stratocaster uses three single coil pickups one in the neck, one at the bridge, and the bridge is where the strings connect to the base of the guitar, and then one in between those two. 
And it's this bridge pickup in particular that causes Hendrix's sound to be so unique. So that bridge pickup on a standard right-handed dexterity Stratocaster is oriented so that it's slanted with the top closer to the neck and then the bottom closer to the bridge. And what this effectively does is it means that the magnets picking up the sound from the strings on your low E string, which is usually the top string, normally is going to have more bass. And then your high E string, which is down at the bottom, is going to have more treble. It'll sound more clear. When Hendrix flipped his guitar upside down, that was reversed. So that meant that his low E string had more treble and his high E string had more bass. And that's because he restrung his guitar so that everything was oriented with the low E string still being on top, then the A, the D, the G, and then his B and high E string. Correct. So it just looked like he mirrored it instead of flipping it upside down. Yeah, exactly. And so that created this really unique sound that nobody else was able to match. It's legendary. And in the meantime, though, this look that he had, which was so different, a lot of right-handed guitarists wanted that, too. So they'd start getting a left-handed neck put onto a right-handed guitar so that it would have that same look. And maybe there's a little bit of psychosomatic effect there where you feel like, yeah, I'm kind of like Hendrix now. Maybe I play a little bit like him. But they don't sound like him? Nobody sounds like Hendrix. But part of why they don't sound like him is because the pickups didn't change orientation. Correct. The only way to get that sound on a right-handed guitar is actually with the Hendrix signature model, which uses his actual pickup orientation just on a right-handed dexterity. Interesting. Did that interest you? Well, you know that it interested me because you've told this story a few times in my presence. And I specifically requested that you say this on the pod. I hope you all found that interesting because I really enjoyed that story. Keep rocking, everyone. And now it is time for us to come to our seven words. I start off with the book. Yet another question I needed answers for. Yeah, life is a series of questions, isn't it? It is. But so is a good story. Sometimes you can run into a problem, like Lost, where they just kept asking more and more questions, and they never really answered them. But I think so far, The Kingkiller Chronicle has done a good job of balancing out proposing questions and answering them. In the beginning, we get a few tidbits about some of Kvothe's stories, about some of Kvothe's adventures, burning down the town of Traben is one of the stories that gets told about him. And we even get the resolution to this particular question at the end of the first book. That's when those events happen. So we're not just leaving every single question open. There is obviously a huge central question within the Kingkiller Chronicle. Who are the Chandrian? What made my parents' song so different? Where does the story of Lanray and Selatos fit in. There are these questions that have not yet been answered, but there are also questions that have been. But the driving thing behind all good stories is what happens next and what happens after that. And we aren't yet at the halfway mark of The Name of the Wind. 
And I think it's perfectly fair to continue asking new questions. Yet another question and yet another question. (laughs) Awesome. All right. And I have the seven words from life. And so mine this week are the future doesn't happen without your voice. Ooh. This came from my coworker and friend, Stacy. The world that comes to be is shaped by the words that we say or don't say. Words are just wind on the most basic level, but they shape actions and they shape beliefs. So the things that we say matter. And so do the things that we don't say. It can sometimes be frightening to speak your mind. And this speech doesn't have to necessarily be verbal. It can sometimes be through what you write, what you tweet, through your votes. So take advantage of your voice and use it because it's what's going to ultimately help shape the world that comes to be. I think that's really awesome. Stacy is a wise soul and I absolutely adore her. She is a dear friend. Absolutely. And so with that, thank you for potting with me, Phoenix. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you also for researching for our next recording that we are going to be doing, which is our Backcountry podcast that is a Patreon-exclusive podcast that will be going over fan theories that concern the events that we have already gone over. We're going to be playing a game with these, where some of these may be things that I found on the internet, but some of them may just be things that I made up on my own on the spot. And it's going to be Phoenix's job to figure out which is which. So if you'd like to play along, consider donating on our Patreon page to get access. And we hope you guys have as much fun listening to this as I've had coming up with these things. And with that, it is time to wrap up. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 37 and 38 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of the first day of school. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. You can also find us at instagram.com slash waystonepod and twitter.com slash waystonepod. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. (laughs) Fork. 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 I don't know. You guys say it like Geralt. Mm. Fork. 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 Fork.